Gordon, can you hear? We can uh, hear. I just lost you for the last 20 seconds. Oh, I didn't say anything that was very important anyway. I was just saying the bit. Gordon? Yeah. Okay, so now she's disappeared. We're just going to switch over to my phone and running from Australia. So we'll see if that's better. Yeah. Recording. So turn off. Yeah. Can you hear us? Hello. I don't think there was a single interview that we conducted during this whole podcast series that didn't have some variation of this routine, either at the beginning or at a critical point of the interview. And trying to address this issue of lousy internet is at the core of statecraft games in the Pacific. That's because every single country is plugged into hundreds of interconnected submarine communication cables that are collectively known as the backbone of the internet. Together, these lines communicate about 99% of all internet data around the world. And Pacific internet speeds, as we found out, are somewhere between a jalopy and a slow-moving truck. According to researchers from the Australian National University, Port Moresby has the fastest internet in the Pacific. But even that is approximately 70% of what it is in Sydney. And that's on a good day. Apia in Samoa is 20% and Haniara in Solomon Islands, 2%. But controlling these lines is of 100% importance to the powers tussling for control and influence. And trying to control this communications infrastructure is just the latest chapter in one of the oldest statecraft games. Welcome to Statecraftiness. standing just outside the area where the Southern Cable, the most significant gateway for Fiji, makes landfall. It's in an area called Rifle Range. It's about a kilometer from the main road. And between the main road and the site itself, there's a golf course on one side of the road. And there's a school and a couple of soccer pitches. But it is really non-descriptive. You wouldn't know that this is a significant site, except for two signboards, which has Fintel written on it, uh, which is the company that's managing. It's got written International Telecommunications Gateway, Matuanga Communications Center. The other signboard is really to warn people about trespassing, saying that you need to be authorized to enter this site. There's a building, the Vanuatu Communications Center. It's a whitewashed concrete building, quite small. There's no uh, visible you know, security fencing, if you like. You can tell that this is a strategic telecommunication area by the golf ball satellites and this big satellite that's located less than 10 meters from the center itself. It's manned 24 seven, but it is an area that's really far from prying eyes in a way. 
It's surrounded by mangroves. You can hear birds and insects making sounds at this time of the day. Most likely unknown to the residents in this area, the significance of the Southern Cross and the fact that this is Fiji's major gateway. Over 90% of our telecommunication to the outside world passes through this nondescript center. That's the voice of Maureen Penduelli, coordinator of the Fiji-based Pacific Network on Globalization. She's outside the landing site of the Southern Cross Cable, one of the major communication hubs in the Pacific. What Maureen is describing is a place that's both modern and timeless. For Fiji has always been the major communications hub in the Pacific, and for that reason, of interest always to the great powers. In 1902, Fiji became the first place in all of the Pacific Islands to be linked with telegraph systems by the British All Red Line. And cutting that line became a major preoccupation of the Germans during the First World War. They succeeded, and to be found on the internet are old sepia pictures of white-suited, pith-helmet-wearing Englishmen looking disconsolate at the cable that is cut in two. Cables were vital also to supply lines during the Second World War. In the old Fijian capital of Levuka was the first communications school, where Fijians, Solomon Islanders, and people from the islands we now call Kiribati were sent to train. The coast watchers who alerted the Allies about the Japanese invasion did so communicating via cables. It's not surprising then that many submarine communication cables have landing points on US or US-friendly soil. And also not surprising that there is forever a tussle for control over them. The Pacific has continued to be an arena for geopolitical competition throughout the Cold War, with the focus less on cutting cables, but more tapping them. Recently declassified documents reveal the story of Operation Ivy Bells, a U.S. Army tapping of cables in the Pacific, which spied on the Soviet fleet. And after the Cold War ended, these methods did not disappear, but ramped up as worldwide underwater communication cables grew in importance alongside the rise of the Internet. In 2013, the whistleblower Edward Snowden revealed how the U.S. and the U.K. were tapping into cables as a matter of course to hoover up our files our texts, our chats. And this spying was going on, according to Snowden, in the Pacific too. He revealed how New Zealand was tuning into cable traffic from as far afield as Fiji, Samoa, Solomon Islands, and French Polynesia. And how big are these cables? I mean, are they the size of a, you know, a telegraph pole? Are they the size of a... Oh no, they're Large smaller. Size gorilla. What what are they size of a cigarette? <laughs> what 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 size are they? Oh yeah, bigger than a cigarette in width, uh, but definitely smaller than a than a telegraph pole. Um, yeah, I guess they're about the width of a coffee mug, something like that. That's Amanda Watson, research fellow at the Department for Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and the world's leading expert on Pacific cables. Amanda started out in radio, has lived and worked in Papua New Guinea, 
and has been following the story of cables and their geopolitical implications for years. These cables are becoming more and more kind of channels, I guess, for kind of geopolitical competition. A couple of years ago, you had China was going to invest in a kind of internet cable going to Solomon Islands. Immediately, Australia stepped in and set up something called the Carl Seat Cable in order to provide internet to Solomon Islands. And this means that when I find myself talking to people in Solomon Islands recently, the connection is sometimes better speaking to people in Honiara sometimes than speaking to people in rural Australia. So why and how has cables become such a kind of site for geopolitical competition? Well, the first thing I would say is that negotiations happen behind closed doors. So we often don't know about the extent to which geopolitics does play into these decisions made by donor countries or groups of donor countries about these things. But in addition to the case of the Coral Sea Cable, another one that I think might be relevant that could possibly be another example of where geopolitics influenced decisions was the East Micro. Micronesia Cable. The East Micronesia Cable, which was to be funded by the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, should have been finished by the middle of 2021. However, that didn't go ahead. And it may be that the three bids that were received didn't meet the technical requirements. So in which case, there's nothing related to geopolitics about it. But on the other hand, there are suggestions that perhaps there were some geopolitical influences in the decision-making process regarding the East Micronesia cable. Does the average internet user in Papua New Guinea or in Solomon Islands see a benefit from having faster internet access or do the cables provide faster internet access? I mean, so often we this conversation takes place at the level of kind of grand policy and strategy, but just down at the kind of village level. I mean, what does your research tell you about end user benefits? So the Coral Sea Cable System that you mentioned before was the one that you're referring to there, which is a cable that was launched late in 2019, December 2019, and it is connecting Sydney to Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea and Honiara in Solomon Islands. From the first Monday in 2020, with colleagues Pikieri and Moses Sakai in Papua New Guinea, we've been monitoring the mobile internet prices in anticipation of a decrease in prices uh, as a result of the launch of the Coral Sea Cable System and also the Kumul Cable. Uh, and we've found to date that there was basically no noticeable impact of the Coral Sea Cable System on the price of data bundles offered by the mobile telecommunication companies in Papua New Guinea. Although we have very recently noticed that one of the companies in September 2022 has uh, dropped prices. And that's because a new mobile telecommunication company has entered the market in Papua New Guinea. So uh, that's not anything to do with the cables. And a major Pacific Islands telecommunications company is now in Aussie hands with Telstra completing the anticipated multi-billion dollar purchase of Digicel. Australian taxpayers contributed the vast majority. Of Can you talk a little bit about the Telstra purchase of Digicel, this sort of Irish telecommunications company, and its interests in the, in the Pacific? I mean, there's a jaw-dropping statistic I read in your research which said that the total cost of the purchase was on or around the annual cost of the Australian aid program to the Pacific. That's a huge amount of money. 
Yes, it is. Telstra initially was not keen to purchase Digicel's Pacific Arm. That's on the record. That's in media reports that the Telstra CEO was saying that they weren't particularly interested. However, the Australian government was very interested uh, in purchasing in this deal. And uh, so the Australian government offered a whole range of sweeteners, uh, such as assistance with foreign exchange and taking on a lot of the risk and of course, dumping up the majority of the money. And to my understanding, that's why Telstra eventually came to the party. They initially weren't interested because it didn't look like a good business deal, I guess. But then once the Australian government offered various concessions and so on, then Telstra ultimately decided to go ahead with buying Digicel's Pacific Arm, which is Digicel's operations in six Pacific Island countries. The six countries are Papua New Guinea, which has, well, definitely more than 2 million Digicel subscribers, and then a smaller number of Digicel users in the other five countries. They are Samoa, where Digicel commenced operations initially in the Pacific, and also Fiji, Vanuatu, Nauru, and Tonga. So there's a huge whiff of a kind of geopolitics and being involved in the kind of sale and in the kind of international bazaar of this. And Digicel, which was in financial trouble, almost took advantage of this geopolitics in order to be able to strike a deal that probably in less turbulent times it would probably not be able to get. So it kind of played the geopolitical game to its advantage. I would stress that I have not been in any of the, you know, private negotiations between the business entities or governments and so on. So I don't know anything that's not on the public record. And uh, indeed, what's on the public record is that the Australian government says that it's about development of the Pacific and so on. But yeah, certainly it's been a massive amount of money that Australia has invested in this Telstra Digicel deal. And Yes, you're right. Digicel, the global company, which operates in more than 30 countries, including in the Caribbean, Latin America, and so on, it had a huge amount of debt. uh, And this was a big problem. It was trying to restructure its debt and so on. So the larger Digicel company had a substantial problem. And obviously, the injection of the funds from the sale of their Pacific arm will have helped the company to address its financial bottom line. Hi, I'm Shelley Janith. As you've probably heard by now, Digicel has just been acquired by Telstra, Australia's largest mobile services provider. This is super exciting for us and big news for our industry. But right now, I'm sure many of you are wondering what's about to change. The short answer is that it will be business as usual here at Digicel. We'll still be called Digicel. We'll still so Digicel's shareholders are excited. Their bosses are really excited. But did anyone on the ground notice any difference? Too early to tell, said Amanda, but she did observe one critical difference on the back end, which speaks to the geopolitics behind the sale. They are at this stage keeping the Digicel logo and colours and so on, so there's no obvious change. They did also say that they would keep senior management and a lot of the existing staff and so on. So in the immediate term, I would say that customers don't need to be alarmed. There's not going to be any substantial change in in a negative way uh, as to whether there's any change in a positive sense, I'm not sure. But I will just mention to you that there is one change that I'm aware of, which is that 
that Digicel is replacing Huawei technology and they've committed to taking out Huawei technology, ceasing to sell Huawei technology and so on. So for instance, I was in August this year, I was at the National Conference on Information Technology in Fiji and the Digicel stall had Huawei modems displayed visibly on their stall table yeah, so many people in the Pacific have Huawei mobile phones or modems that they use. And yeah, Huawei is very prominent. I'd like to stress, though, that Huawei has always denied any allegations of spying. Huawei says they don't do anything untoward. They're not exfiltrating data. They're not doing anything they shouldn't be doing, they say. Um, so I just wanted to mention that Huawei was actually also one of the major sponsors of that conference in Fiji that I referred to. And they are very much well respected and appreciated and used in, in much of the Pacific. And uh, from Huawei's perspective, they have a lot of technology and, and expertise to offer and they're not doing anything wrong, they, they yeah. say. So it's a complex and tricky situation with two sides to the story, I guess. When I spoke to China watcher Graham Smith, He'd clearly been reading up on his book of colourful Irish business practices. Well, I think in the case of the Digicel deal, I mean, uh, Australia, not the first um, country in history to be taken for a ride by an Irishman, but I think uh, we, we, we certainly uh, well and truly were taken for a ride. Um, the level of interest by China why, Mobile. Why, why, do, why, do you, why do you say that? Uh, I, I asked that as an Irishman, of course. Uh, look, I, I think um, possibly the level of interest by China Mobile might have been overblown, and certainly the value of the company was certainly, uh, you know, generously valued, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, I sold my Telstra shares quite some time ago, so I'm not exposed in the same way that you are. But again, it seems Telstra will come through relatively unscathed. The Australian taxpayer, um, possibly not so much. It's also great if you're somebody like the Solomon Islands government or Timor-Leste government because now you get really good quality internet cables that are going to come from Australia that you would never have got before. No, and they can thank Xi Jinping you know, <laughs> for, for that benefit. And what about the everyday users of the internet and mobile phone services? We took to the streets of Port Moresby to ask the people there if they noticed any improvement in service from the Telstra takeover of Digicel and the arrival of faster internet via the Carl C. Cable. I'm just going to say it plain like right now, Digicel is expensive. But as for reliability and speed, they got it locked down. So as for me, I've switched to Vodafone because Vodafone is more, it's cheaper. And again, I reckon they have better data plans. I think things have got slightly better. Price-wise, if you switch to Vodafone, yes. I reckon with Digicel, it just got more expensive. I don't know how. There's still a lot of internet issues and everyone talks about it all the time, you know. So I, I do use it more now and I do spend more on it because it, it, I need to. I guess being in Australia and just being able to just go and buy one day and then being able to just go like four or five days without worrying about recharging my phone, you know, getting used to that, loving it. And then coming back to PNG and getting back on 
be mobile. <laughs> the frustration was just a bit too much. It's like, oh my God, I have to come back to my country and, you know, deal with this again. Like having to walk out all the time to go and recharge. Uh, you know, it's a state-owned entity, so I'd like to give money back to my country, but if the services are not good enough, then I'm sorry. Like, I have to turn my back on you. When they implemented the undersea cable, maybe it's definitely improved. It's better than a couple of years ago, I'll say that much. But I think recently there was an issue with the cable and then everything just got bad again. Yes, uh, there was a natural disaster that affected things and now things are spotty. Like, it's sometimes good and it's sometimes bad, but overall, yeah, I'd say things have improved. Uh, more affordable, there's more service providers now with that provide deals that are good for the market because now they're competing with each other and now, you know, it's not a monopoly anymore. The cost of internet is one thing, but having access to good internet is another thing. And I will say that if you're looking back at, say, 2010, the internet access here was a whole lot better than what we experience now. Probably because I live um, on the fringe of the city, my access is not that good, and all there's times when vote is up and vote is down. Um, Digi is Digi's good, but Digi is pricey, and I haven't used Digi for a while. Since Voda came in, it just literally changed everything. However, the quality of the internet was, was a different thing, you know. It's got more affordable over the years, but it's still not affordable, affordable. Because like most people, like you, you probably say, would you buy data or would you buy 500 grams of rice or something? You're buying rice, you're buying your food, you're not buying data because data is expensive. I checked in with Maureen again. She was definitely aware of, concerned about the great game going on in terms of the cables and mobile phone ownership. But to her, this was overlooking the most important issue, that of data, who controlled it and who could access it. I mean, mobile phones is... The medium of communication is, is quite critical. I mean, it's changed the landscape in terms of in Papua New Guinea. If you're looking at just purely agriculture, right? How do produce, you set the price from the highlands uh, and sold on the coast. Uh, same in Fiji. They're critical for all kinds of you know connections to the outside world. But at the heart of mobile phones is data. It's both personal, commercial, government data. And I think that's at the heart. I mean, we all know now that data is the new oil, the new gold. And I think that's pretty much why there is such attention about mobile companies, who sets up, when they set up, and how much market share they occupy. Because it comes down to this thing called data that people don't pay attention to. So I think we are moving to a place where governments in the Pacific are really starting to assert this real push for data sovereignty. Because the way data is, is constructed now, is it's quite dynamic. Uh, people don't pay attention to personal data. Like People just don't understand the way uh, companies are gathering data, analyzing the algorithms that, that, that comes from this, how it shapes uh, economic spending, trade decisions, and all of that. But I think that's that's at the heart of it. And people now all over the world, this is now the heart of the debate because we're in the 21st digital century, right? Where data is at the heart of it. So who controls it, who manipulates it is quite critical. So at the moment, we're now pushing very strongly to talk about data sovereignty from a country level perspective, but all the way down to individual citizens. Like what is your right around data? Who has access 
and who controls it. And it's quite phenomenal that the mobile phone, because it has all of these additional apps. I mean, traditionally, you and I, we just use a phone for a telephone conversation. But now it facilitates emails. It has all of these apps that all kinds of data is moving back and forth. And I think that the mobile phone is representative of that, this small, tiny box, which is doing so much around data and data use. And so I think governments are cluing on to the need to control the data, but citizens are increasingly starting to pay attention to data and what the mobile phone represents. It is, it is really interesting. Like, I mean, who owns this conversation that you and I are having? Who's listening? Like, I um, spent a lot of time in Timor-Leste. And after about three months, I had you know, a little Nokia phone. And every time I tried to ring somebody, like my friends or like the woman who's now my wife, it would just go, you know, as if there's kind of this sort of high-pitched dog whistle that I could hear. And I was really naive. And I said, I have no idea what this is. And that's what they said, oh, that's either the Chinese or the Americans or the Australians that are kind of listening, listening in on you. And we take this stuff for granted. And I talked to the IT person and he said, speaking on a mobile phone or sending each other a text message is like the equivalent of me writing a postcard to you. The postman in the United States can read it. The postman in Fiji can read it. All the post people on the way in between read it. We just never really think about it. I mean, I, we're a little bit more savvy because we are, we're on the watch list. So we know we have recorded and watched. So obviously security, data security is quite critical, but a lot of people just don't think about it. For us as an organization, we've been hacked several times. We're quite aware of security and we're quite aware of what governments, but also partners can do. The back and forth that Maureen and I had took place over 16 hours worth of time difference. Her in Suva, me in Washington, DC. And our conversation would have been mediated through that Southern Cross cable with its connection to Hawaii and onto the continental United States. This would have been one of the tens of thousands of conversations that would have been taking place within Fiji and between Fiji and the rest of the world in just those few minutes alone. Obviously, we did record the conversation between us. It's why you're able to listen to it on this podcast. But I've thought in the weeks since just how many other imprints of our conversation there must be. And who else beyond you, podcast listeners, might have access to it? There was the interview platform software. There was the artificial intelligence software I put the interview into. There was the shared drives in which I put the script for the team to work on. The more you think about it, the more you can see why states want to control the communications infrastructure under our feet, in our hands, and in the cloud above us. And you can just imagine why they'll do anything, even give you cheaper internet, in order to obtain that. In the next episode, we'll consider the agenda around gender, which is one of the most ubiquitous features of modern Western statecraft. I'm your host, Gordon Peake. Mark Peter Nataras and Shanna Ryan at Cultural Pulse produce the podcast. Joanne Wallace at University of Adelaide is the executive producer. Luther Knut is the sound engineer and producer. 
This activity was supported by the Australian government through a grant by the Australian Department of Defence to the University of Adelaide. The views expressed are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Australian government, the Australian Department of Defence or the University of Adelaide.